this is a Hohner harmonica called the Little Lady. My grandmother actually had one of these. Has anyone supposed it lucky to be born? <laughs> I think I could turn and live with animals. They're so placid and self-contained. I turn and look at them long and long. The gigantic beauty of the stallion, fresh and responsive to my caresses, head high in the forehead, limbs glossy and supple. They do not lie awake in the dark and weep for their sins. This is a city, and I'm one of the citizens. I am not an earth, nor an adjunct of an earth. I am the mate and companion of people, all just as immortal and fathomless as myself. These are really the thoughts of all men in all ages and lands. They are not original with me. I'm aware who they are. To feed the greed of the belly, the brains liberally stoning. Thank you. I celebrate myself, I sing myself, and what I assume, you shall assume. Hi, I'm Kevin Larimer, Editor-in-Chief of Poets and Writers. And I'm Melissa Falavino, Senior Editor of Poets and Writers. And this is Ampersand, the Poets and Writers Podcast. In this episode, we'll be hearing some clips from a fascinating documentary film project, Whitman, Alabama. We'll also be hearing from a few of the authors featured in First Fiction 2017, including some of the best debut books of the summer. Plus, we have readings by Sherman Alexie and Erica L. Sanchez. And so much more. So stick around. August issue is out with a special focus on literary agents. And this year we approach these important publishing professionals not as, you know, a group of strong-arm gatekeepers behind closed doors polishing the keys to the industry, any one of whom you'd thank your lucky stars to have represent you, and rather as a community of passionate people who love books and who want nothing more than to find you, the talent, holding the keys that they want. And as such, writers should really take their time and do the research and choose which agents they'd like to work with, not just firing off a query to any agent they come across. So I reached out to 12 agents whose doors are open, who are eager to receive queries from writers, and asked them some questions about themselves, their clients, what they want to read, and how and when you should send it to them. And the result, We Mean Business, 12 Agents Who Want to Read Your Work, is, I hope, a pretty insightful look at how these people operate and how you can reach them including how to follow them on Twitter. Yes, many agents are, of course, active on Twitter, and why not use that as one more sort of tool? Uh, you can learn a lot about someone by what they tweet, retweet, and like. <laughs> yes, for better or worse, that is true. <laughs> um, uh, so also in our special section on agents, we have a piece by Michael Bourne, who looks at the evolving author-agent relationship and how the publishing business is changing so that agents are working you know, really closely with their clients, helping them edit their manuscripts before they send them off to publishers. Right. Agents as editors. Elsewhere in this issue, we have an incredibly moving piece by Edwidge Danticott, who writes about death, the art of death. 
and her mother, who died of cancer and left behind cassette tapes she had recorded as messages for the living. Uh, she also writes about authors such as Susan Sontag, Christopher Hitchens, and Audre Lorde, who wrote through the process of dying during their own last days. Yeah, it's a really powerful piece, and it is the first chapter of a book that's coming out uh, with Grey Wolf as part of their Art of series, um, right. The Art of Death. Yep. And of course, our cover profile is Arundhati Roy, whose second novel, The Ministry of Utmost Happiness, is being published 20 years after her debut, The God of Small Things, was released to you know, nearly universal acclaim, selling over 8 million copies and being translated into 42 different languages. 20 years. We've been waiting a long time for her new novel, but as contributor Renee Shea discovered, Arundhati Roy has been busy writing in the last two decades, just not fiction. She's come out with a number of nonfiction books, mostly about politics in India. Right. And she also has a really uh, refreshing take on patience as a writer. Uh, she told Renee, quote, while fiction is necessary, I prefer it to be timeless rather than timely. When I write fiction, I am prepared to wait for it to come to me. I am never in a hurry. In News and Trends, we have a very cool piece by Maya Popa on a project called Whitman, Alabama, which is produced by filmmaker Jennifer Crandall and combines poetry and documentary film with the goal of highlighting voices from the South and exploring ideas of statehood, nationhood, and identity. So she essentially has been traveling around Alabama for the past two years with a team of videographers asking strangers to read verses from Walt Whitman's 1855 poem, Song of Myself which of course famously explores the concept of self, both individual and universal, and the transcendent nature of American identity. The product is pretty amazing and really quite moving. It has definitely made me cry at my desk a few times. Yeah, it's it's really powerful. Uh, it features people young and old from different backgrounds and ethnicities and experiences performing the poem, which in the end really seems to fulfill Crandall's mission for the project, which she says is to reveal the threads that tie us together as people, as states, and as a nation. So you can find videos from the ongoing project at their website, whitmanalabama.com. But we're going to listen to a little bit of it now. And what we're going to hear is the poem's first verse, which was performed by 97-year-old Virginia May Schmidt, who has since passed away. This was recorded in her living room in Birmingham. Look right here for me, Virginia May. Hmm? Just like you are, looking right here at the camera. Mm-hmm. Don't move. Stay right there. Starts like that. Mm-hmm. And start like and this. Then, and then and then starts. Mm-hmm. What do you think? I like it. Yeah, that's good. Okay. Is this before or after the drink of water? No drinking. No drinking. No drinking in this home. I actually put some whiskey in there. No shoot. <laughs> uh, I thought you were gonna bring me a scotch and soda. <laughs> I celebrate myself and sing myself and what I assume you shall assume for every atom belonging to me as good belongs to you. I loaf and invite my soul. I lean and loaf at my ease observing a a spear of summer grass. My tongue, every atom of my blood formed from this soil, from this air. Born here of parents, born here from parents the same, and their parents the same. I, 
now 37 years old, and in perfect health, begin. Hoping to cease not till death. Creeds and schools and a band. Retiring back a, a while. Sufficed at what they are, but never forgotten. I harbor for good or bad. I permit to speak at every hazard. Nature without check, with original energy. That was excellent. Yeah. Pretty good at this. Did we get it? In this issue, we also have our 17th annual First Fiction Roundup, which features five debut fiction writers whose books are published this summer. So for this feature, we ask five established writers, some of whom have previously been featured in First Fiction, to interview the year's debut novelists and short story writers, and ask them about their process and experience putting out a first book. So our debut fiction writers this year are Zinzi Clemens, author of What We Lose, Hala Alian, author of Salt Houses, Jess Arndt, author of Large Animals, Lisa Coe, author of The Leavers, and Diksha Bazu, author of The Windfall. Right, and they are interviewed by Danzi Senna, Mira Jacob, Maggie Nelson, Emily Rabiteau, and Gary Steingart. These conversations are always fascinating, and this year is no exception, so be sure to check those out in the magazine. We also have an online exclusive up at pw.org that includes excerpts and audio recordings from each book. And we're going to hear a few of those right now. This is Jess Arndt, and I'll be reading from the story Large Animals. In my sleep, I was plagued by large animals. Teams of grizzlies, timber wolves, gorillas even, came in and out of the mist. Once the now extinct northern white rhino also stopped by. But none of them came as often, or with such a ferocious sexual charge as what I mangling Latin and English as usual, called the walry. Lying there, I faced them as you would the inevitable. They were massive, tube-shaped. Sometimes the feeling was only flesh and I couldn't see the top of the cylinder that masqueraded as head or tusks or eyes. Nonetheless, I knew I was in their presence intuitively. There was no mistaking their skin. Their smell was unmistakable too, as was their awful weight. During these nights, the days seemed to disappear before they even started. I was living two miles from a military testing site. In the early morning and throughout the day, the soft, dense sound of bombs filled the valley. It was comforting somehow. Otherwise, I was entirely alone. This seemed a precondition for the walry, that I should be theirs and theirs only. On the rare occasion that I had an overnight visitor to my desert bungalow, the walry were never around. Then the bears would return in force, maybe even a large local animal like a mountain lion or goat. But no form's density came close to walrusness, so I became wary and stopped inviting anyone out to visit at all. The days, unmemorable, had a kind of habitual slide. I would wake up with the sun and begin cleaning the house. 
No matter how tightly I'd kept the door shut the day before, dust and sand and even large pieces of mineral rock seemed to shove their way inside. I swept these into piles. Then the dishes that I barely remembered dirtying. Some mornings it was as if the whole artillery of pots and pans had been used in the night by someone else. Then the trash, again always full. Then some coffee. Eight o'clock. This work done, I sat in various chairs in the house following the bright but pale blades of light. I was drying out. Oh, an L.A. friend said, somewhat knowingly, from the booze. But I had alcohol with me, plenty of it. It wasn't that. I moved as if pre-programmed. Only later did I realize that my sleep was so soggy that it took strong desert sun to unshovel me, and since it was the middle of winter and the beams were perforce slanted, I'd take all of it I could find. For lunch, I got into my car and drove into town to the empty parking lot of Las Palmas. There were many Mexican joints along the highway that also functioned as Main Street. I hadn't bothered to try them out. Las Palmas, with its vacant booths, dusty cacti, and combination platter lunch special for eleven ninety nine, including $4 house margarita, was fine. A waitress named Tamara worked there. She seemed like the only one. She wasn't my type. So tall, she bent over herself in a bonafide chain smoker. Sometimes, to order, you'd have to exit your booth and find her puffing outside. A friend who had borrowed the bungalow before I did told me about Tamara. And so if I had a crush at all, it was an inherited one that even came with inherited guilt from having taken her on once he could no longer visit her. Regardless, we barely spoke. I had things I was supposed to be doing, more work than I could accomplish even if I duct taped my fists to my laptop but none of it seemed relevant to my current state. In the afternoons, I drove back home slowly, always stopping for six packs of beer at the Circle K. I enjoyed the task. The beer evaporated once I stuck it in my fridge. It was there, and then it was gone. My sleeping area was simple, a bed on a plywood platform, a wooden dresser, built-in closets, and a cement floor. At first, I would wake up in the night from the sheer flattening silence of the desert, it was impossible that the world still existed elsewhere. After that initial jolt, relief. Don't you miss it, my same friend said during our weekly telephone chats. But I couldn't explain the euphoria of walking up and down the chilly aisles of Stater Brothers in week-old sweatpants if I wanted, uncounted by life. Would I buy refried or whole beans, this brand or that? It didn't matter. No one cared. It was in these conditions that the walry arrived. I'd slept as usual for the first few hours, heavily in a kind of coma state, then had woken, I thought, to pee. But lying there with the gritty sheets braided around me, the violet light that was created from the fly zapper, the desert cold that was entering through the gaps and cracks in the fire's absence, I felt a new form of suffocation. It wasn't supernatural. I'd also had that. The sense of someone's vast weight sitting on the bed with you or patting your body with ghostly hands. This breathless feeling was larger, as if I was uniformly surrounded by mammoth flesh. Dream parts snagged at me, slapping sounds and hose-like alien respiration. I felt I was wrestling within inches of what must be, since I couldn't breathe, the end of my life. Now the lens of my dream panned backward and I saw my opponent in his entirety. He lay, if that's what you could call it, on my bed, thick and wrinkled, the creases in his hide so deep I could stick my arms between them. 
His teeth were yellow and as long as my legs. I'm sexually dormant, I said aloud to him, but I want to put my balls in someone's face. Then somehow, light was peeling everything back for dawn. My name is Zinzi Clemens, and I'm reading an excerpt from my novel, What We Lose. To my cousins and me, American blacks were the epitome of American cool. Blacks were the stars of rap videos, big-name comedians, and actors with their own television shows and world tours. Notorious B.I.G., Puff Daddy, Janet Jackson, Martin Lawrence, Michael Jordan, Halle Berry, Denzel Washington, we worshipped them, and my cousins especially looked to the freedom that these stars represented as aspirational. It was a freedom synonymous with democracy, with political freedom, with America itself. It was rarefied, powerful. But when I called myself black, my cousins looked at me askance. They are what is called colored in South Africa, mixed race. My father is light-skinned black. I look just like my relatives, but calling myself black was wrong to them. Though American blacks were cool, South African blacks were ordinary, yet dangerous. It was something they didn't want to be. American blacks were my precarious homeland. Because of my light skin and foreign roots, I was never fully accepted by any race. Plus, my family had money, and all the black kids in my town came from the poorer areas. I was friends with the kids who lived on my block and were in my honors classes. White kids. I was a strange in-betweener. Yet my parents always spoke of a strong solidarity with black people in Africa. To call themselves something other than black was to take on the divisions of apartheid that grouped them according to skin tone and afforded them unequal privileges to keep them beholden to the state. They had been unfairly segregated, and it was their wish to live outside these divisions. That was something I absorbed that never left me as the years went by. But when I expressed this desire outside the house, I was met with confusion and, at the worst, hostility. At a party during my senior year of high school, when my friends and I were just beginning to drink beer and learning how to be ourselves in the company of these new factors, drunkenness, adulthood, I mentioned, as I often did, I fashioned myself a politically engaged contrarian in my high school years, that I was the only black person at the party. But you're not like a real black person, a white girl named Annabelle said to me, smiling, solicitation in her eyes. I felt ashamed, stunned, Uncomfortable, I said nothing, and after that day I never spoke to her again, indignant, but still unsure how to respond. That the tragic aspects of American Black's legacy are largely visible to the rest of the world is something I realize only later. I can quote our poverty rates, our mortality rates, Black-on-Black -black crime, and narrate the story of America's prison system that turns Black men in and out like assembly line products. My naivety, my feeling of rejection, made my identification all the more strong. I only desired to belong, and I idealized this group as one does a storybook character or a superstar, or anything one doesn't know firsthand yet loves like an old friend. Fuck the world, fuck my moms and my girl. My life is played out like a jerry curl. I'm ready to die. My mother cautioned that I would never have true relationships with darker-skinned women. These women would always be jealous of me, and their jealousy would always undermine our friendship. 
She told me to be careful if I ever went into the city, that the rough teenage ones would slash my face with a razor blade. When I fought with a friend, my mother would inquire about her complexion. If the friend was darker, she would nod her head, a look of I told you so on her brow. I asked her how she could have such racist views of women. Weren't we all sisters? That's just how it is, she told me blankly. My mother was a shade darker than me, with almond-shaped eyes and hair that was slightly coarse but straightened out easily with an iron. She was identifiably black, more than I ever was. I'm often mistaken for Hispanic or Asian, sometimes Jewish, but categorically light-skinned. Sometimes people thought she was Spanish too, and dark enough, where we often encountered the uncomfortable pause of a white woman in my hometown trying to discern our relationship, mother-daughter or hired help, charge. My mother's views imbued my friendships with political importance. If I could maintain a relationship with a darker-skinned woman, I would prove her wrong. And so I pursued these relationships with fervor. I've often thought that being a light-skinned black woman is like being a well-dressed person who is also homeless. You may be able to pass in mainstream society, appearing acceptable to others, even desired. But in reality, you have nowhere to rest, nowhere to feel safe. Even while you're out in public, feeling fine and free, inside, you cannot shake the feeling of rootlessness. Others may even envy you, but this masks the fact that at night, there is nowhere safe for you, no place to call your own. I see you looking at me. I know how you see me. One of the writers featured in page one this issue is Sherman Alexi, who is a poet, novelist, short story writer, and the author of 26 books, including the short story collection The Lone Ranger and Tonto, Fist Fight in Heaven, and the young adult novel The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian, which won the National Book Award for Young People's Literature in 2007. So Sherman Alexi grew up on the Spokane Indian Reservation in Welpinet, Washington, and much of his writing deals with his experiences there and his complicated decision to leave. His new memoir, You Don't Have to Say You Love Me, which is out this month from Little Brown, is about those experiences um, and about his mother who died in 2015. It's a really beautiful book. Uh, it's funny and devastating and really formally inventive. Um, some of it is written in traditional prose and some of it is lyric poetry. Uh, what we're about to hear is chapter 15, which is a scene from his mother's funeral that's written in couplets. So here is Sherman Alexi reading from his new memoir, You Don't Have to Say You Love Me. Chapter 15. The Viewing. As the story goes, my beautiful cousin was born with deer legs, dropped from the womb and sprinted out of the clinic and made it halfway home before the tribal cops pulled her over for speeding. In kindergarten, she was faster than every adult. I watched her, three feet tall, outrace my father up a sand hill while dodging rattlesnakes at Blue Creek. In sixth grade, racing in her first organized meet, she looked back near the finish line and was so far ahead that she burst into tears because she'd hurt her opponent's feelings. And then she never raced again. 
in 2015. A few days after my mother's death, my quick cousin stood next to me as I stared at my dead mother lying in her plain pine coffin at the funeral home in Spokane. The undertakers were white men, but they'd buried generations of local Indians so they knew how to culturally comfort us, and better, they knew how to leave us alone. That was the private family and friends viewing. So that meant 30 loud Indians had gathered in the otherwise quiet funeral home. Lillian looks beautiful, my cousin said, and I had to agree. My mother wore her favorite turquoise business suit and a multicolored beaded medallion that could have eclipsed the sun or moon. My cousin took my hand, bumped me with her hip, and said, Hey, you and I used to be the skinny and pretty cousins, and now we're old and fat and homely. Hey, I said, I'm still pretty from the neck up. My cousin laughed and said, my soul's spirit animal is the butterfly, but my ass's spirit animal is the buffalo. And I said, I eat food like my father used to drink booze. I binge and binge. And my cousin said, oh, man, me too. And then my cousin began to weep. I didn't cry with her, but I mourned. I don't know if I was mourning my mother, or if I was mourning for myself, or if I was mourning for my cousin's mourning. Maybe I was mourning everything. Nothing makes me hungrier than sadness, I said. I could eat a TV dinner made out of apple strudel, Salisbury steak, carrots, and grief. My cousin smiled. We hugged and shared a half-lipped cousinly kiss then ambled over to the waiting room where my eternal cousin reached into her tote bag and pulled out a bag of nacho cheese tortilla chips like it was a relic worthy of worship, like we just returned from an ancient vault where the dead worshipped only crunch and salt. My cousin and I ate all those chips. We ate the walls and floors. We ate all of the coffins, jewelry, and shawls. We ate all of the flowers, and we ate all of the air. Then, for dessert, we ate all of the prayers. Another page one author in this issue is Erica L. Sanchez, a poet, novelist, and essayist in Chicago, whose debut poetry collection, Lessons on Expulsion, will be published by Grey Wolf Press in July. The daughter of undocumented Mexican immigrants, Erica also has a debut young adult novel, I Am Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter, forthcoming this fall from Knopf Books for Young Readers. 
She's been the recipient of the Ruth Lilly Fellowship, a Breadloaf Scholarship, the Discovery Boston Review Prize, and a number of other awards. And her poetry has appeared in Guernica, Paris Review, Poetry Magazine, and on NPR, among many others. So we reached out to Erica and asked if she'd read some poems from her new collection. And here she is with an excerpt from Lessons on Expulsion. A woman runs on the first day of spring, Chicago. When I am a stranger to my own ruin, twilight reminds me to give alms to my best sins. March, this city is purging in the humility of worms, salt washing from the grasses. When I breathe in, I say thank you. When I breathe out, I say gone. I say garden, I say guns. Three crows devour the dead rat. Look at all that booty, the man mutters and blows me kisses. The sky is worthless and my bulbous ass is always a dinner bell. I run farther. I run with a feather inside my ear. I run from a bird with a broken neck and follow the sound of thawing snow. Aren't we all boundless though? The way a dream secretes the morning after, the way moths feed on the eyes of fawn, two and not two. Vines that strangle trees never say they're sorry. I reach the lake with this grateful ache in my throat, and if I say my body is its own crumbling country, if I say I am always my own home, then what does that make me? That's it for this episode. Tune in next time when we'll be talking about the September-October issue. But now we're going to leave you with a little bit more from Whitman, Alabama. This is Demetrius Leslie, who is incarcerated at the Kilby Correctional Facility in Montgomery. Um, and he's the barber there. And he's reading a few lines from verse 24 of Walt Whitman's Song of Myself. Walt Whitman, a cosmos of Manhattan the sun, turbulent, fleshy, sensual, eating, drinking, and breeding. No sentimentalist, no standard above men and women or apart from them, no more modest than immodest. Unscrew the locks from the doors, unscrew the doors themselves from their jams. Whoever degrades another degrades me, and whatever is done or said returns at last to me. Through me, the effortless surging, and surging through me, the current and index. I speak the password primeval. I give the sign of democracy. By God, I will accept nothing which all cannot have their counterpart of on the same terms. All right. All right.
Ampersand is a production of Poets and Writers, Inc., the nation's largest nonprofit organization serving creative writers. Ampersand is edited and mixed by Melissa Falavino. Music for this episode was provided by Poddington Bear, Springtide, The Heavy, and Zola Jesus. Subscribe to Ampersand on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, or through our website, where you'll find photos, articles, and ephemera for each episode, including excerpts and readings from all five authors featured in Debut Fiction 2017, plus more from Erica L. Sanchez and Whitman, Alabama at pw.org forward slash ampersand. Mm-hmm.